The title of this message is Lament in Faith. Lament in Faith. Let me um, read our text for tonight. Oh, here. Go ahead. If anyone needs notes, um, May has them. Let me read our text for tonight, and then um, I'll pray for us, and we'll get started. So this is Psalm 13. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are presented tonight with a heavy text, um, one that we might not be comfortable handling. And so I ask that you would be here with us as we open it up, as we see what's going on, as we see David's heart and your help in the midst of his suffering and his response. Father, I ask that you would teach us how to lament in faith, that this would be a tool for us, a pathway to your grace that would allow us to receive love from you. I pray that we would not run away from the, from the idea of suffering, um, that we would not be afraid to confront it, but I ask that you would work tonight powerfully in our hearts to teach us that you love us and are caring for us even in the darkest of nights. Teach us to sing tonight. Um, teach us to use this psalm as our language of faith. And may we be found glorifying to you and honoring to you and joyful, um, but striving for, for trust and faith in the midst of even the diff most difficult parts of life. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever felt forgotten by God? Have you ever wondered where he is? why he's not doing anything in your life, why he's not near to you. Have you ever woken up in the morning and felt hopeless, like there's no reason to get up? Have you ever felt despair to go to school, to see people, or do, to do an assignment? Have you ever looked at your Bible and felt nothing, emptiness, just like it's words on a page? Have you ever prayed to God but didn't really think that he's listening? Do you know how to handle feelings like that? Do they scare you? The reality of life is that it's hard, and that's very normal. For some reason in the church, many Christians have this assumption that a faithful Christian is never supposed to feel a negative emotion or thought. A good Christian is joyful. A good Christian is um, strong. We tell ourselves that we just have to push through. I have to live my best life now. I have to try harder. For some reason, we tell ourselves that other people would look down on us or question our faith 
if anyone finds out that we feel that God is absent. So we keep up appearances. We keep our questions and our hurts to ourselves. We show a version of ourselves that looks pristine and nice and clean, but inside our souls rot. I know that many of you are experiencing this, and I also know that God has good hope for you today in this psalm. Our Heavenly Father cares about the reality that life is hard. And he doesn't want us to just suck it up and stick it out. He doesn't want us to just act strong and wipe away our tears and pretend to be happy all the time. No, he wants us to come to him for help. He intends your pain to be filled with meaning because it is an opportunity for him to give us himself. He wants to be our happiness. He wants to be our strength. He wants to be our comforter and our fount of grace. And in the Bible, in the Psalms, God shows us a way to access him. It's a pathway of grace, and it's called lament. What is lament? Simply put, lament is a prayer in the midst of suffering that leads to trust. Lament is a prayer in the midst of suffering that leads to trust. In lament, God invites us to grieve and trust, to struggle and believe. It allows us to faithfully bring our sorrows to God, to process pain, and to survive as we cling to God through the storms of life. The psalm that we are looking at today is an exemplary psalm of lament, and it shows us, by David's example, how it is possible to live life in between the poles of a hard life and God's goodness. Remember, the psalms are not so much didactic, they're not so much for teaching, as they are illustrative and archetypal. They are less about teaching us information, and they're more about showing us patterns to live by. The words in this psalm are here for you to use. They are a prayer for you. They are the language of faith. We're going to learn how to use them tonight. I choose this psalm tonight because lamenting is a Christian practice to deal with suffering in faith. And I know that there are some of you who are dealing with raging emotions, with depression and anxiety, with frustration and difficulty at school, with difficult relationships, with um, death of family members and people important to you, fear of the future, discouragement, your own sin. And so I'm, I'm, we're choosing, we're looking at this psalm because everyone needs to learn how to do this. The reality of this life, of living in a sin-cursed world, is that you are going to suffer, if not today, then someday. You're going to hurt. You're going to grieve. The weight of life and pain and circumstances is going to weigh down on your heart. And it will feel as if you are being crushed without hope for escape. And you're going to need to access this pathway of grace. You're going to need to know how to lament well. So listen, our main idea tonight is in the midst of suffering, complain, plead, and hope in God for his glory, and for your good. In the midst of suffering, complain, plead, and hope in God for his glory and your good. 
Let's walk through Psalm 13 and follow David's journey through lament to learn how to pattern our own. Our first point is turn to God and complain. The author of this psalm is David. And when you imagine King David, a mighty general, the greatest king of Israel's history, characterized and memorialized as a great man after God's own heart, the ancestor and forerunner of Christ himself, what do you see? Do you see a strong and commanding presence, a confident king with a thunderous voice who stands with puffed chest, who never wavers in the presence of his enemies? If there was anyone expected to be strong, it was David. If there was anyone expected to be steadfast in heart and in mind, it was the godly king of Israel. If there was anyone expected to cast off fear and sadness and loneliness and doubt, it was David. And if there was anyone to be close to God and feel confident and strong and secure in God, it was David. But what we might expect of the mighty king of Israel is very different from what we see in verses 1 through 4. He says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Turns out that the mighty king of Israel was human after all. He was just like us. Turns out even David's life, a man after God's own heart, was filled with sin and suffering that he was unable to bear. He starts with this question that he repeats four times, how long, O Lord? David is suffering, and it feels like it's never going to end. We can put up with hardship when we know that it's only for a little while, when you know that the end is sure and it's coming, but nothing eats away at us than suffering that goes on with no end in sight. A feeling of rejection from God is excruciating, and David wants it to end. The worst part is that, or the worst part may be that he doesn't know why. The psalm includes no confession of sin, no circumstances that could cause distance from God, no reason for God to hide his face. God feels cold and far, and he doesn't know why, so he cries. It might sound like David is complaining when he says, how long? But actually, I want us to see that this is a prayer of faith. Let's look at why. Notice when he calls God, he calls him Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Bible translations often capitalize the Lord to indicate when the writer is using the name Yahweh, the name that God uses when he reveals himself to Israel through Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. This name carries great significance. With it comes the whole history of Israel and God's commitment to fulfilling his promises. And the mention of his name was supposed to be a reminder of his character and his covenant faithfulness. It will call to mind stories of God delivering the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. Images of God leading the people through the desert by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Wrapped up in this name is God's faithfulness, his omnipotent power, his deliverance, his mercy, and his steadfast love. 
All of these things are supposed to be on David's mind when he says this. And it's also, it's almost as if he's implying, God, I know who you are, and I know who you have been in the past. I know you are faithful. I know that you fulfill your promises. I know that you are near to your people. I know that you are committed to us. I know that you are kind and that you are powerful and just and righteous. But then why do I feel differently? Even in calling on the name of the Lord in this way, David complains. And this is not sinful. It's actually his godliness at work. Let's look through the different reasons why he asks how long and how they are expressions of faith. First, he says, will you forget me forever? And the way that David uses forget here implies rejection. If God forgets you, it means you're cut off. It means he doesn't care for you. It means that you're not important to him. And when you hear David cry, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You might think, that's, that's crazy, David. Of course, God isn't going to forget you forever, you fool. He's God. You might think, David, how could you complain to God like that? Suck it up, dude. You're just a wimp. Stop being dramatic. What happened to your theology? Before you jump to conclusions about David's faith, realize that this complaint is actually imbued with faith. This is godliness playing out in real life. In his act of honesty, expressing his hurt to God, David is drawing a line between his perceived reality and what is truly real. He knows something is wrong. He knows that God is near. He's faithful, merciful, kind, and just, and true, but he doesn't feel it. He feels as if God has forgotten him. He feels as if God is purposely avoiding him, hiding his face from him. He has an expectation that God will be near to him and feel near to him in a certain way. But for some reason, God is not meeting his expectation. Of course, it is not possible for omniscient, eternal, infinite God to forget David. It is not possible for God who is omnipresent and constantly expressing his glory in the created world to hide himself. And David knows that, but there's a gap between his heart and his knowledge. Second, he says, how long will you hide your face from me? God's face is a very important theme in the Old Testament. God's face shining on you meant having his favor, knowing him personally, having an intimate and caring relationship with him. Numbers 6, 22 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift, lift up his countenance, which is his face, upon you and give you peace. This is the greatest blessing in the Bible, to have God's very presence shining upon you. But David, for some reason, feels as if God is revoking this blessing from him. It feels as if God is hiding his face, even though God himself blesses Israel and thus David, with his very countenance that brings grace and peace. Third, he says, how long must I take counsel in my soul? This taking counsel in my soul 
is a biblical term for what we might call spiraling. It's that getting stuck in the extreme turmoil of your thoughts, where you might get in your head and pile negative and self-deprecating thoughts on yourself until you suffocate under the weight of your own shame. It's when you start asking, why is this happening? Did I do something wrong? Does God hate me? Can he forgive me? It's when you start digging up old, long-forgiven sins and plaster them back on your heart, asking, is that why you're, you're punishing me? Is that why you're treating me like this? It's when you start assuming that God is punishing you. It results in hearts that are empty with nothing but sorrow and darkness to sit in. That is where David is. Fourth, he says, how long will I have sorrow in my heart? David is, is sad. We all know the feeling when your heart gets squeezed by sorrow and your body is ready to collapse in with it. It's that feeling of hopelessness and dread. When the tightness in your chest causes you to gasp for air. It's the feeling of constantly being pushed to the verge of tears with no relief. This is David's constant disposition. And the despair of knowing no relief from his in intense sadness is unbearable. Lastly, he says, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? His enemy being exalted over him is a humiliating threat to his authority as king. His throne is challenged. As God's anointed king, David had plenty of enemies. He battled the Philistines all his life. King Saul pursued him and tried to kill him for eight years. But at the same time, it felt as if there was an expectation for him to conquer his enemies and stand unopposed as the king of God's people, as the one through whom God promised the Messiah would come. It challenges his faith in God's justice. As king, he should not have enemies or people who successfully oppose him and stand over him in victory. So he asks God, why are you doing this? In all of these questions, David knows that something is very wrong. He knows that in God's ideal world, he would not feel any of these things. But the reality of living in his sin-tainted world is that things that shouldn't happen, happen, and life hurts. And instead of wallowing in his hurt, in the pain of life, he takes it straight to the one who has control over it. God, do something about this. I know you can. I know you're in control. I know that you know that this is wrong. Help me. David's succession of how long is a faith-filled complaint. It says this is wrong. Life should not be like this. God help me. I, only, I know that only you can help me. And honestly crying out to God for help in this way is a, an expression of true faith in two ways. One, it expresses true faith because he affirms, his exist he affirms God's existence when he turns to him. And two, it affirms that God is able to care for him. And that is how your complaints to God, how your crying out to God also expresses your faith. When you believe that God can help you, and when you believe that God is real and turn to him and cry out, you are living out your faith. Crying out to God is not an expression of doubt. It does not show weak faith. It actually shows strong faith. How do you deal with emotion? 
How, you, how do you deal with pain? When you are sad, what do you do? Do you laugh? Do you make depressing jokes? Do you speak lightly about your pain and tell others that you're fine? This psalm shows us that you do not have to fake it. You do not have to hide. Pain is not a joke. Sadness is not to be written off. When you ignore and push down your own pain, you throw out an opportunity to receive God's love in the midst of it. And when you ignore or make fun of or joke about the pain and sadness of others, you destroy an opportunity for the love of God to be treasured and known in the heart of another. Do not laugh about sadness. Take sadness seriously. Take loneliness seriously. Take suffering and depression and struggle seriously. And take it to God. You are allowed to say scary and honest things to God. He is not punishing you in your pain, and he will not punish you if you speak honestly to him. He is not displeased. He is strong enough to take your unfiltered feelings. This feeling of abandonment from God is real and painful, and the person of true faith will bring it to God. So turn to God, complain, cry. This first step, this is the first step into his pathway of grace, of lament. Our God, whose steadfast love never fails, does not shame or condemn you when your heart is confused or slow and when your feelings are erratic. Rather, he allows you to come to him, to complain, to cry, to honestly express the burdens of your heart, to tell him how you feel. That's how he works amidst our pain. Our Father, who knows our foolishness and our inconsistencies and sin and unreasonable emotions, and who knows our frame, that we are but dust, that life in a sin-cursed world is hard and filled with sadness and confusion, suffering and pain. He knows these things, and he invites you to be honest to him, to pour out your heart and say what you feel, not to give space to you to vent or to wallow, but to bring your hurts in a real and honest way because he loves you. God is not angry with David for saying, how long? Otherwise, he would not have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to immortalize these words in the pages of Scripture. Otherwise, this psalm would not have been given to the choir master for the people to sing corporately. Otherwise, a whole third of the psalms would not be characterized by this same language. God does not want you to clean yourself up. He wants you, he, he does not want you to put on a mask before you come to him. He does not need you to be strong, nor does he need to, you to solve all your problems before you come to him for help. A doctor does not need his patients to come to the hospital only after resetting their own broken bones or conquering their cancer. A loving father does not require his daughter to stop crying and be, and be strong before she runs to him for comfort. Come to God. David shows in his complaint that God is worth hanging on to even when he feels distant. And he shows that painful realities of life do not deny God's existence. His nearness, his compassion, or his care. This is the first step in accessing the grace of lament crying out. 
The second step of lament is pleading. David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. In these two verses, David makes requests to God. He says, pay attention to me, God. Give me an answer. David's words are completely unfiltered. Save me or I'm going to die. Save me or else my enemies, your enemies, are going to mock me and stand over my dead body in victory. When you are hurting, you are allowed to ask God for help. Tell him what you want. Tell him what you need. God is glorified and happy when his beloved depend on him and ask him for help. When it feels like God is far from you, you must not trust your heart. You must not believe your feelings when they say that God has rejected you. He's actually near, and he is ready to listen to you when you cry out. So make requests. Ask God for things. Ask God for help. Do your prayers to God sound like this? Do you think that, God is, that you are allowed to say these kind of things to God? God cares about your needs, and it is not unpleasing to God to cry out to him like this. Sometimes I think we can be afraid to ask God for things because he might not answer. And I know that all of you have experienced asking God for something that you need or want and receiving a cold response, a no, a closed door. But the truth about prayer is that everything we say to God is heard by him. Nothing is forgotten or missed by God. However, sometimes there are things that we ask for God, for, of God that aren't actually good for us, even when we think that they are. Sometimes God says no to answering our prayers in the way that we want them answered so that he can answer them in a way that is much better. In those times, we have to trust him. But he still wants us to ask. He wants us to depend on him. And you can trust him to be dependable. Plead with God. The third and last step in lament is hope. In verses 5 and 6, David brings his lament to completion when he makes this drastic turn toward hope. He says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Lament has direction. Faithful crying out to God does not end with honest complaint. It does not end with pleading, but a goal of hope to which the only entryway is a simple decision, trust. This but at the beginning of verse 5 is the most important conjunction of the psalm, and it is a defining characteristic of every lament psalm. 
And that's because lament is not just complaining, it's not just making requests, but it's trust in God, despite what your circumstances might lead you to believe about God. It's a trust that is rooted in who God is, not who you are. It's an external trust, not because of anything you are, but all because of who God is. Who he has been, what he has done, who he promises to be. Faithful lament results from a clear conviction and understanding in your mind that in your suffering, it is not you who clings tightly to God as storms howl and as winds buffet, but it is God who holds you tightly. You are not a child clinging on to the jacket of your father as he drags you along, but you are one safe in the arms of your father as he shields and walks with you through the storm. Let's look a little bit more closely at David's words. In these two verses, David makes two decisions to trust, two declarations to trust, and both are based in his history with God. David chooses to trust God because of who God has been in the past. Let's look at the two. They offer us two encouragements to help, to help us to have hope in suffering. His first response encourages us to trust in God and hope in in his salvation. First, David says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David makes a decision to trust. My heart shall rejoice in the future salvation based on who God has been. I have trusted in the past in your steadfast love. His steps going forward are founded on God's track record and reputation. Notice this word steadfast love. It's hesed in Hebrew. It brings to mind the faithfulness of God in the past. It's not this vague idea of love, but it's a very clear and actionable love expressed in commitment. It's one of loyalty and enduring allegiance. Steadfast love is shown when a person is unwaveringly loyal to another, no matter who they are, what they do, or where they go. For David, thinking about this word, probably evoked most prominently the covenant that God made with him in 2 Samuel 7. God promised unconditionally to David that through his lineage would come the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus, the one true king and savior of Israel who would establish a kingdom that would endure forever. In David's mind, his kingship and God's commitment to Israel in that way would be an enduring reminder of nearness, commitment, and love to them, not because Israel was great, not because they were strong or obedient or faithful to him, not because their lives weren't filled with suffering, but simply because God loved them, simply because he desired to fulfill his promises to them. That's what's packed into Hesed. And that is why David has reason to trust God, his steadfast love. Notice how in these verses there is no mention of change of circumstances. David cannot hope in the future because he does not know what future salvation is going to look like. He doesn't know how exactly God is going to move or save him, how long he's going to take, or how long he will have to lament for. But it doesn't matter. 
David knows that God will be true to his word. And while his enemies surround him and mock him and push him to the brink of death, David still chooses to trust God because he knows that God will be faithful to what he has promised. We, as Christians, have even more reason and clarity to trust God. While David didn't know what salvation in the future looked like, we do. We know that Jesus the Messiah has already come, that he's conquered sin and death, that he did so on the cross and he rose again, and that one day he will return to establish his eternal kingdom on earth and wipe away every tear from our eyes. We know that to be fact. Our hearts have a clear picture of salvation to rejoice in. And although our stories right now may be marked by struggle and hopelessness and loneliness, the end of your story is written. It ends with you worshiping before the throne of God with perfect joy and perfect peace, with no pain and no grief, with clear vision to see how even this season of suffering somehow fits into his sovereign plan that is perfectly good. How it resulted in your good and God's glory. We must trust in God and hope in his coming salvation. The second encouragement that David mentions is to sing to God. David says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David's second decision to trust is just like the first. He chooses to trust and specifically to sing because God has been faithful to him in the past. The Lord dealing bountifully with David is a powerful image. It is one of God meeting all of David's needs. It's one of God giving him more than he asked for or deserved. It's daily grace, sustenance, and generosity poured out day by day. But you might wonder, what happened to David's complaints? What happened to verses 1 through 4? It might feel to you as if David is pushing out of his mind his current suffering and circumstances and just numbing his heart with platitudes. But what he is actually doing is bridging the void between the difficulties of life and God's goodness. He's creating a path through the wilderness of his pain by putting his hope in God. The movement of faithful lament is from honest, pain-filled questions through supplication, trust, and hope to God-centered worship. In verses 5 and 6, David looks out of himself and away from his circumstances and looks at his God. And because he sees a God who has been faithful, gracious, steadfast, and merciful in the past, he can choose to trust him in the future too, even though life is in ruins now. For us, we have to look at God who has been in the past faithful, and we have to choose to trust him even when we hurt. If the thought of trusting of singing, of hoping, of having to do something is burdensome to you like it is for me. Realize that the act of trusting, of putting your hope and your faith in God, is not a task accomplished by you. It's a gift that is given to you by God. 
He desires that you receive his gift of faith. He is the one who enables your trust. It's as simple as choosing to receive it. Jesus, the author of your faith, is also the perfecter of it. And this trust isn't just a one-time deal from God or on your part. Lament and trusting in lament is active patience. Lament through extended suffering says, I'm hurting, God. I don't know what you're doing, God, but I trust you. I know that it's not going to feel good, that it's not going to be easy, and that it's not going to go away, but I trust you and I receive the faith that you give me. Maybe you can't identify ways that God has dealt bountifully with you in the past like David can. Maybe you can't remember or they just don't come to mind. For those of us who are blinded by our circumstances, whose dark clouds and debilitating pain of today obscure the goodness of yesterday and the hope of tomorrow, we have one light that does not fail to pierce through our darkness. When you feel as if God has forsaken you, look to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus bowed himself before God, sweating drops of blood as he prayed for deliverance from the turmoil of suffering the cross. Look to Golgotha, where as he hung on his bloody cross, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and suffered the full rejection and destruction of God so, end, so that he could end the tyranny of your darkest night to shield you from ever facing the true crushing weight of rejection from God. Look to the beginning of time when even before the foundation of the world, God chose you in Christ and said, I am committed to you. I'm committed to saving you, to making you holy, to adopting you as my child, to lavishing the riches of my glorious grace on you, to sealing you with my Holy Spirit, to guarding you and protecting you, keeping you safe until you come home to me in glory. God receives honor for his glorious grace in committing himself to you in such a way. And he receives honor for his glorious grace when he pours it out on you in the midst of your suffering, in your time of need. And do not be mistaken, lest we diminish God in his infinity. God's glorious grace is no measly brook or simple stream. It is the greatest of any surging waterfall more torrential than Niagara Falls, a relentless cloudburst of steadfast love upon his children. And when you look at the thousands and thousands of gallons of water that pour over that waterfall every second and think, surely there has to be an end to this. Surely it can't pour out like this forever. Then, and only then, do you realize that you've only seen the start of it the torrent of God's grace and his love for you has no limit. This is the measure of God's grace for you in the midst of your suffering. It's grace poured out on you in Christ. Grace, hope, satisfaction, strength that you can dive into when you bring your suffering to God in lament. So for right now, while the clouds are thick and the night is dark, lament.
complain, plead, and hope until the clouds lift and the sun rises and you see his face clearly again. If you are in a season of suffering and if praying honestly to God in faith and lament is characterizing your daily life, you are not alone. Two years ago, God brought me through an extended season of loneliness and burnout and spiritual depression, and I felt like a fraud. I felt weak fighting sin. I felt I was searching for contentment and joy in what felt like a never-ending desert. And in the midst of that, the grace that God showed me was through crying out to him and honestly pouring out my thoughts and my brokenness to him. And through providing faithful friends, some of who are, whom are in this room, friends who came alongside me and cried with me and carried me through, God met me. The good news is that lament opens a door to more grace in the church. If God wants us to use lament for our good and for his glory, then we should be a youth group that laments together. We should be Christians who support other Christians in lament. Look at verse zero, the subscript of this psalm. It says, for the choir director. This is a psalm written by David to the choir director, the one who would be leading a congregation in singing. Even though this is an individual lament, it's written in the scriptures for the church to sing and pray together. This is language for us to use together. You never have to suffer alone. Most of all, of course, we need God, but we also need other people to lift us up to God, to buoy us up as we wait for God to calm the storm. We need each other when life is hard, and we need to cry out to God, plead before him, and put our hope in him together. Look around at the people sitting next to you. These are the people that God has given you for your good, to love you, to support you, to listen to you, to point you to God, to pray for you. These people are a manifestation of God's love for you. He wants to help you in your suffering through them. And you must rely on them. At the same time, you must be someone who can be relied on. If you are a Christian, you don't have to fear condemnation from God. And that means that there's also no fear of condemnation from other people in this room, other Christians. We will love you with Christ-like and patient love. We will come alongside you and carry your burdens with you. We will seek God together. Please open up to us. Please don't push us away. When we open up our hearts to God in honesty, and in lament, and when we bring our hearts and our burdens, our sufferings and our trials to him, he meets us, 
and he wants to give himself to us. May we seek God in lament as we complain, plead, and hope in him. As we close, we're going to have a time of prayer and singing. And um, during this time, um, on the back of your notes, there's um, a little chart. Um, And I broke down the psalm um, into three parts. Turn to God, bring your complaint, ask boldly, and choose to trust. Um, And and during this time, I encourage you to take the words of this psalm and write your own lament. To bring the words of Scripture to your own suffering and to cry out to God. During this time, um, uh, I, I also want to encourage you to go and pray for individuals in this room who you know are hurting. Think of how loved that they would be to feel to have someone who knows what they are going through pray for them and lift them up to God. Use this time to cry out to the Lord and seek help in the time of your need. And... um, At the end of it, I'll I'll close this in prayer, but I I want us to realize that this is life together. Lamenting as a youth group, it should be part of our daily lives. Life life is hard, and we need each other to do it together, to do it well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go into this time of prayer, of reflection, and, um, and singing. Heavenly Father, life is hard. And we thank you that when life is hard, we don't have to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and be strong. We don't have to fake that we are doing okay. We don't have to push down our emotions or tell ourselves that that we just need to be stronger. We thank you that we can bring our hurt to you, confident that we will not be rejected, confident that you are there ready to welcome us with open arms, to give us yourself, to give us true comfort and hope and peace and joy, comfort that will last into eternity. So, Father, I ask for us as a youth group that you would teach us to not hide, to be honest, to be real with one another, to pour out our hearts to one another. Father, may we be found faithful in the way that we are honest and real with each other and with you. And I ask that as we open up our hearts to you and lament and choose to trust, that you would meet us, that you would give us yourself. We thank you for the love of God, for Jesus. And we thank you for the salvation that we have in him, 
the hope that we have to be united with you forever. And I pray that Christ himself would be our joy, would be the rock on which we stand, would be hope for us in the midst of trials. And I ask that you would help us to lament for our good and for your glory. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.